you can uh, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. And as you're getting there, let me just give you a little bit of a background as to, you know, where we're at this morning, how this fits into the overall picture, and maybe even how we do things at Redeemer. If this is your first time here, we tend to work through books of the Bible just chapter by chapter. And uh, like I said today, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 15. But um, just a little bit of a reminder that so far in First and Second Samuel, lots happened. Um, God has made David king of Israel. God gave David, God gave David victory on every single military front. He's enjoyed enormous military success, and so there's peace, there's rest on all sides. And uh, that was really great for about ten seconds. And then David, um, like any man, has let pride just for a moment enter into his heart. He's on a rooftop, and he sees Bathsheba. Bathsheba is not his wife, but he calls for her. He commits adultery. And, uh, you know, eventually what happens is um, he has um, her husband killed um, because she becomes pregnant, and he's trying to cover it up. Um, The fundamental position of David's heart really is to honor and serve and love and obey God, but he's human, not perfect. So we watched in horror as all this unfolded, and then God steps in and says, David, you're guilty. You've committed a grievous sin, and there's going to be some consequences. And he tells David, through Nathan, his prophet, he says this. He says, you had despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So that was in chapter 12. Right away in chapter 13, we begin to see all this evil unfold. Amnon, who is one of David's sons, assaults his half-sister, Absalom, the half-sister's full brother. He's furious about it. He doesn't do anything about it at first. He remains silent. Two years go by, but he's scheming, he's brooding, and he has Amnon killed. And so at that point, Absalom leaves. He's out of the country now for three years, basically in exile, until we learned last week that he's basically, David is duped into bringing Absalom back into, uh, into Israel. And so already, this story has all of the, the, the qualities of a great Netflix or HBO series. Um, we've got off-the-charts dysfunction and drama in a royal family. Today, we're going to see political maneuvering. We're going to see some gut-wrenching betrayal. And we're even going to see some espionage. And yet the Bible is going to give you something that HBO and Netflix never will. It's going to give you the calming providence and the favor of God in the midst of this very turbulent storm of human affairs. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 15, this is verse 1 through 6. Remember that Absalom is back in the country. He's been allowed to enter the throne room. And chapter 14 ended with this scene of Absalom coming before David. And he bows before David, bows before the king. And the king doesn't speak to him, but he does kiss him. And that's it. This is verse 1, chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. 
but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man would, with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to him to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did all, to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Okay, so we learned in the last chapter that Absalom was exceedingly handsome. Apparently he had like really beautiful, long, flowing hair and really beautiful, unblemished feet. And so, you know, I don't know if that's relevant today, but back then when you were wearing sandals all, all the time, you know, then that's probably like a noteworthy thing. You know, the guy's beautiful from head to toe. Um, but not just that, he also has a flair for showmanship. We see that he's gathering 50 men before him to run in his chariot. And the interesting thing about chariots, if you remember back to 1 Samuel, that the people of Israel are asking God for a king. They're asking Samuel for a king. They're rejecting God and they're saying, hey, we don't want judges anymore. Your sons are wicked. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And so this is what 1 Samuel says, and this is in chapter 8. God warned them about what it would be like whenever a king um, would come on the scene. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his, uh, and to run before his chariots. David nor Saul is ever depicted as ever having a chariot or running with, uh, riding on a chariot. In fact, it's always Israel's enemies that have a chariot, and this makes sense. The people of Israel wanted to be like other nations, and Absalom, as brilliant as he is, realizes that, and he appeals to that sense of, I want to, to show you what it's like to really be a king like everyone else. So um, he's not also much showmanship. There's more to him, in fact. Um, he was in exile for three years. Okay? So he's got a lot of time to brood and to scheme. In addition, he was ostracized from his family for two additional years. And um, he, he's basically alone, can't talk to the king, can't talk to anybody. And he's had a lot of time to really think over his plan. And so he's acting this out. He's at the city gate first thing in the morning. And he's intercepting people who have come to the king to decide justice in their disagreements with others. And that was the king's job. If you had a disagreement and you couldn't settle it, you could go to the king and he would settle your affairs. But then he does four things. He lies to them. He tells the people who come, the king has assigned no one to hear your cases. So basically what he's saying is your affairs, your personal matters, the king doesn't care about. But then secondly, he does this. He actually doesn't execute justice. He doesn't really hear the case, think, consider, and decide on the matter. He just tells everybody, you're right, right? And there's nothing more that we like than to hear someone say, okay, you're right, especially if you're married, okay? We understand this. The third thing he does is he promotes himself. He says very plainly, I could be a better king. And the people are not put off by this, which is interesting because we know how this works. Like if someone's willing to tell you that you're right, you're willing to look over all other kinds of offenses or, uh, or, 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 um, or, or poor character because the king has basically said, I agree with you on every matter. You're right. And so now we don't care whether or not all these other things are in order with our leadership. So, and then finally what he does is he, this is the fourth thing, he smooches them a little bit. As they come in to kneel and pay homage, he stops and he grabs them. And he says, come on in. And he hugs them, and he gives them a kiss. He greets them like a friend. And so you can just see the false humility just dripping here. He's pretending to be a relatable 
approachable person. So Absalom is a calculating politician, and we recognize his song and dance. The showboating, the lying, flattering, self-promotion, inauthentic relatability, every election cycle, we see this play out in our own tiers of government in this country and in others. It's, it's just common to man. And sadly, it works, and it works for Absalom. He does this day after day, and he does it for four years. And the Scripture says powerfully that Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. And there's a super interesting wordplay in verse 5. Samuel says that when the men came to pay homage, he would take hold. That, that word, that phrase, take hold, is the same one used of Amnon when he took hold of Tamar to assault her. And so the idea here is that just as Amnon forcefully, wickedly took hold of Tamar to take what wasn't his, Absalom is doing the exact same thing. He's forcefully, wickedly, wickedly taking hold of the kingdom, and he's going to take it away from David. Picking up in verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord, in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur, and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his own city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people of Absalom kept increasing. So obviously Absalom is lying to his father about why he's going to Hebron, but Hebron was Absalom's birthplace, and it was also a very common place. It was a popular place for worship, so David apparently suspects nothing. Strategically, for Absalom, Hebron, Hebron was a major city in Judah. Judah was the southernmost territory, and it was the largest and leading territory of the entire nation. As far as cities in the Promised Land, Hebron is number two behind Jerusalem. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of their wives, by the way, are all buried there. It was the very first parcel of land owned by the Hebrews. After the Israelites crossed the Jordan, leaving uh, from, uh, from Egypt, Caleb was promised Hebron by Joshua himself. So this is a big city. It's an important city. And also, um, it's, you know, David was actually anointed king in Hebron. If you were to read back um, in uh, the beginning of 2 Samuel, that's the place where he started as king. And he actually reigned there as king for seven and a half years. So, like, it totally makes sense that he would uh, face his conspiracy out of there. And it's only 20 miles from Jerusalem. So after... Um, his coup kind of takes hold and starts to work. He's got a very short jaunt to Jerusalem where he can take hold of the seat of power. So Absalom has worked hard to build supporters in every tribe. Um, so when he's coordinated this announcement, this trumpet blow that lets everyone know, hey, this coup is starting, everyone is ready to jump in and be on board. It really seems that David is yesterday's news. He was once a popular figure, and now it's more like, what have you done for me lately? And Absalom is the one who's done something for everybody lately. So Absalom has effectively, uh, he's manipulated the common man, but he's done more than that. He's also, he's, he's strategically gathered the influential and powerful away from Jerusalem to Hebron. This would include David's counselor, Ahithophel, who, by the way, was Bathsheba's grandfather. You really have to dig for this. I didn't find it on my own, but um, Ahithophel very likely is super upset that Bathsheba 
um, was taken by David, that Uriah was murdered, and this may have been the reason why um, he decides to leave, uh, be disloyal to David, and go on over to Absalom. So all of these powerful men are in a room in Hebron with Absalom. And you can feel the pressure that must have been in that room because if they get up and leave, remember they came unsuspectingly, they get up and leave that room to go back to David, they could be executed on the spot. And then if they don't get executed, they are for sure going to be fugitives from Absalom in the event that Absalom is successful in taking over. And so, um, you know, also kind of playing in this most likely, these guys want power. They have small pockets of power, but they want to keep it. And so they can feel the tide shifting in the country. They feel that people are starting to go over toward being loyal to Absalom. And so, of course, they stay. This is verse 13. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house, and all, this, all his servants passed by him. And all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came here only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? It's like, go I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, wherever for death, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the, la- all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. The scene here is an incredibly emotional one. David and his family leave first, and they stop at the edge of this royal neighborhood. Then all the household servants and loyal followers of the king are walking past him in this mournful and you know, impromptu procession. And this includes the Cherethites, the Pelophites, and the Gittites. And these are all Philistines. They all came probably with David whenever he was hiding out with Philistines when he was running from Saul. And so this is just a stark contrast between these foreigners who remain loyal to David and the nation who have decided to go after Absalom. Samuel records for us this very personal moment also between David and Ittai. So Ittai and his fellow Gittites, they've only recently come to Jerusalem, and David is giving them the opportunity. He says, look, you don't have to stay if you want to, to just, you don't have to come with me. You can stay if you want. You'll be safe, you'll be comfortable, declare your loyalty to the king, and you won't have to be a fugitive with me. Just the fact that David has this awareness in this moment is remarkable. He's got great character, and his love for his followers is sincere here. Um, and it's this quality of leadership that actually causes Ittai to want to, to continue to follow. He basically says, I'm willing to go with you, even if it means death for us. And it would, because again, if you leave, you're saying that we have loyalty to David, and Absalom is going to be coming. 
So to leave Jerusalem and enter the wilderness, David and his company have to cross the brook Kidron. And uh, so, you know, on the eastern side of Jerusalem, there's the, the, what would become the Temple Mount where the temple would be constructed. And then there's this, there's this valley, the Kidron Valley. And um, a thousand years later, another king would cross over this same valley. And the parallels here between David and Jesus are absolutely incredible. John 18 tells us that Jesus, after the Last Supper, on the night of his arrest, went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And that garden was on the top of the Mount of Olives. So we have said over and over and over again throughout First and Second Samuel that David is meant to point us forward toward Jesus. And we see this here. This is a magnificent way in which the Bible really verifies that Jesus is the Messiah, is the one in the line of David who would come and be king. Listen to this. Um, David and Jesus are both, have both been betrayed by someone close to them. They are both also leaving Jerusalem, accompanied by loyal followers, and being pursued by power-hungry men who have manipulated the populace to wrestle them away from the one who was rightfully king. These circumstances for both David and Jesus would, would lead them both across the brook, the brook Kidron, up this mountain to the Mount of Olives, and it's here we pick up in 24, uh, verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me, and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, excuse me, he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. Remember back in 1 Samuel, that, that book basically starts out with the Israelites, the elders of the Israelites, taking the ark of God out to try and wield it as a weapon against the Philistines. That's what's happening here, and David refuses to do it. He realizes that, hey, I cannot manipulate God. God doesn't owe me anything, and I'm not taking the ark to use it as a weapon. Instead, it's going to stay here where God instructed me to leave it, and if he has pleasure in me and I get to come back here, great. If not, his will be done. At the same time, Absalom knows, excuse me, David knows that Absalom is in the wrong for trying to overthrow God's anointed king. Remember, David spent a good part of his life running away from Saul and not taking opportunities to kill Saul when he could have. He could have taken the king, kingship by force, but he never did it. And so in this case, he realizes now he's kind of in a similar situation. I am not going to go and I am not going to if I can help it, I'm not going to let Absalom do the same thing. So he starts to position the priests as spies in the uh, as spies with Absalom in the inner circle. The priest's sons also have messengers, or the priest's sons are going to be the messengers. So David's going to wait in a certain place, and the sons are going to be moving back and forth, telling David whatever it is that he needs to hear. So this is the last section, verses 30 through 37. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. 
barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. David's walking up the mountain. He's barefoot. His head is covered. These were traditional signs of mourning, and he's weeping. He's not hiding his, his sadness from the people, and the people are doing the same. They are in solidarity with him. At this time, also, he's praying. He's asking God, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. So he finishes this ascent up to the Mount of Olives, and when he gets up there, on the top, and by the way, the top of the Mount of Olives, if you're standing there, you can look out and see all of the whole city of Jerusalem. So it's a beautiful sight, and so it made sense that people would often go up there to, to worship God. As he's getting to that point where God was worshipped, that's when Hushai comes, and you see this glimmer of hope that God is sending David. Hushai is a close friend of David. Hushai comes in in solidarity again with David. He's torn. His, uh, his clothes are torn. He's covered in ashes. And David says, don't go with me. Instead, I want you to be my informer in the inner circle. Go to Absalom, be there with him. Whatever you hear, you tell the priest, they'll tell the sons, and the sons will get it back to me. So, there's two things that really I think that we might look at for application here, and the first is this. Um, this is not a story of good guys and bad guys. Okay, this is a story of um, broken people. And like David and Absalom, we also are broken and we are complicated people. And that's why this story has so much for us. Um, life is just messy. It's messy because people are messy. Both you and I are an absolute mess of self-promotion and sincere struggle to honor God. We are a conglomerate of bad decisions and God-honoring moments. And we see this in David. If we are to have any hope at all in finishing well in this condition, we have to be reliant upon the mercy of God. And that's what David did. Absalom, on the other hand, Absalom was given some rope by God to fulfill some ambition. On the other hand, David, even in his sin, trusted in the character of God and God's mercy. So I think the question for every human being is, which do you want? Do you and I, do we want rope from God to fulfill ambition? Or do we want mercy for today's failing? Lamentations tells us that his mercies are new every morning, and I know that that's printed on several million coffee cups right now, but it's only meaningful if you actually realize that you need mercy. David wrote in Psalm 14 this, he said, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And the answer is no. They have all turned aside, the psalm says. 
Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So David knows this. He wrote it. Listen to the words of Psalm 3. This is also written by David. And it was written by him actually when he was living out these events. As he's fleeing Absalom, Psalm 3 is what, what comes out of that, that situation. O oh, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. How does David have such nerve? He knows these are consequences for his sin. He's living out those consequences, and yet at the same time, he's asking God for mercy. The reason why is because he knows who the Lord is. He has walked with God, knows his character is steeped in mercy and kindness. In Psalm 51, David writes this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Look, sin has really awful natural consequences. But God's mercy and His ability to work good in the midst of those circumstances is always available to those who come to Him and just ask. After Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley and stood on the Mount of Olives, He was arrested and then He was crucified. And this is why we can have any confidence at all that we can experience God's mercy. Because that was God's plan. It was his plan to execute his wrathful and just punishment against sin on Jesus, God's own son. Isaiah tells us this, that Jesus would make many to be accounted righteous, that he would bear our iniquities. All that is required for us to experience forgiveness of sin is that we have a mind to turn away from sin and toward God's mercy. And we see, we see David do that. David didn't have the opportunity to um, to live after Jesus like we did. But he knew the character of God. He knew his mercy. And so even when he sinned, he would turn away from that sin. Remember, he was chasing the ball. He was going to be getting, um, he was going to avenge himself for a humiliation that he endured. And Abigail stopped him and said, don't do this. This is wrong. Let the Lord be the avenger. And Dave, what did David do? He said, you're right. I'm wrong. I won't. Even when he was um, approached by Nathan, and Nathan said, look, you've committed adultery. You're the man who did this terrible thing. What did David do? He said, I sinned against the Lord. You're right. I'm wrong. And then he clings and just dives into the mercy of God. We know because Jesus died for our sin that that mercy is always also available to us. First John says this, uh, this is one nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why David could walk up that mountain, suffering consequences of sin, still pray to God and get an answer. And for you and I, it's the same. Your sin can hinder your prayers, but if you remember God's mercy, it won't. Because God does not deny a contrite, repentant heart. Okay, so let's summarize again how we got to chapter 15. This all begins on a rooftop, pride in David's heart, because he had forgotten that God was the source of all his success. And then the dominoes just start to fall. Adultery, murder, death of a child, assault, revenge killing, 
Absalom, his son, living in exile for three years, another two where they're not talking. Then Absalom comes back, and he starts to completely take over the hearts of the men of Israel. You have to ask yourself, why did David let this happen? Why is it that, that, that Absalom, with all of this fanfare, he wasn't doing this in secret, he's at the gate every single morning. And he's getting there by chariot and all these men, and David lets it happen. I think the answer might be this. We don't know why. We do know that David's um, his attitude toward his sons when they fail is inaction. He's not going to do anything. He's just going to let it go. It could possibly be because he doesn't want to approach them because he's got similar sin in his own life. Like he himself is guilty of illicit sexual sin and murder. So maybe he thinks, how can I approach my sons on these matters when I myself am guilty? It could be because of pride. Maybe he just doesn't want to step into the shame that would um, that would be um, that he'd have to deal with and wrestle with if he was to approach his sons, because this is in his family. It's under his name. Maybe he's just really, really super busy with the affairs of being a king, and he's tired. He doesn't want to deal with it. We're not told why. We just, we're just told that he doesn't do anything. We're told he's angry. We're told that he didn't speak to Absalom, but it's all in action. And so I think that we understand this better than maybe we'd like to admit. Um, we've all had heard the phrase, some things are better left unsaid. And at some point, each and every one of us has decided not to address an issue so that we can keep the peace. That we're not going to broach this difficult topic because if we did, things would just blow up. And yet I wonder if David, and, and so, you know, this is just from a human perspective. This is all God's plan. This is how God works. But I wonder if David had grabbed Absalom when he came and said something to the effect of, I'm sorry. I've sinned too. You've sinned. I've sinned. Let's talk about this and let's move forward. But we know that didn't happen. Instead, things just fester. And again, we get this. If we don't address issues, things brew. And eventually things blow up, either for the first time or for the 101st time. And so we're going to wrap up here. And there's a few things that I just want you to pray with me about. And the first thing is this. I want, I know, because as I was writing this, I was thinking, okay, here are the things, here are the relationships in my life where maybe we've got some things that are unsettled. And I know that for many, if not most of you, there are unsettled things in your life with people that you love. And it could be a parent. It could be a spouse in this room, out of the room. It could be a sibling. It could be a child. There are things that you cannot elbow your spouse right now. You can't do that. Um, there are things that you right now that have, have been left unaddressed. There were things were said, things were done, and then since then, it's just been this undercurrent that has defined every single facet of your relationship since then. And maybe you've just gotten used to it. Maybe you've even forgotten what health might look like. But yet, when you get together, there's this friction. There's these things that are unsaid. And so we're going to pray for three things. The first thing I would like us to pray for is just a mind um, to actually make it right. That we would have courage and that we would have um, 
the willingness to step out and have a hard conversation. The second thing is that I would like you to pray for wisdom. Because you cannot just step, step into a situation, a bull in a china cabinet, and start throwing accusations. Okay? And that we're going to pray for wisdom to know how to approach this. And the third thing is for the Spirit to go ahead of us. Because, look, this is complicated. Sometimes, if you're dealing with you know, a Christian, this might be easier because the Spirit may be working in both of them, and the Lord does beautiful things between believers because ultimately they both want to please God. But sometimes you're conflicted with someone who does not know God, does not know the mercy of God, does not care to please God, and they're just angry. Okay? And frankly, that can be us too. We can just be, just, just, just be angry. But we want, to be, we want to be prayerful that in this situation, whatever it is for you, that God is working ahead of us, and we believe in a God of miracles. God can work through and with anyone. The Scripture teaches that clearly. And so we're not going to sit back and say, oh, it's just always going to be that way. They don't want to change. No, we trust and believe that our God can work, that He wants to work, that He wants to bring healing and reconciliation. And ultimately what He wants is to bring attention to Him. And so if there are things that have not been said that can be fixed and redeemed, situations that can be restored, that brings honor to God and ultimately it might bring someone you love one step closer to Jesus. So we're going to pray for those things. And, um, you know, look, again, this is not simple. We're not going to sit here and say, hey, you know, um, we're going to have one conversation. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be great. And we're just going to move forward and everything's going to be happy-go-lucky at that point. Okay, we're not naive, all right? This very likely could be a process, okay? But we're going to pray to that end and the band's going to come up and then we'll, uh, we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to walk in mercy. Lord, we thank you that we, um, even when we fail, and even when we fail big time, that you are there, and because you love us, because you've purchased this relationship that will always be unbroken through Jesus, we thank you that we can come to you, enjoy your mercy, and still walk with you and enjoy your blessing. Father, I pray for um, our relationships with our loved ones. Lord, I ask that you would bring to mind these things that we need to reconcile, these people that we need to restore relationships with. Lord, would you give us wisdom to know how to move forward? And Lord, would you give us, um, would you give us your spirit? Would you work in us? Would you move before us and the people that we want to speak with? And um, we trust you. We trust you because you've proven yourself trustworthy, because you are the God of miracles, because you can do whatever you want, and we know that you want good things for us and for your name. Amen.